Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editor Sue Sutter and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 15th, 2023. We've got an interesting mix of stories from this week. First up is Regeneron's new deal to develop a COVID-19 monoclonal antibody. The U.S. government included language in the contract that requires the list, pl- the list price of any commercialized product to be equal to or less than the retail price in comparable markets. That's not entirely a novel concept. Multiple procurement contracts from COVID-19 vaccines the U.S. government signed during the pandemic included somewhat similar language. But placing this sort of requirement in a development contract appears to be different. The deal is worth $326 million and was made through the Health and Human Services Department's Project NextGen. There are numerous threads here. Not only is the government seemingly trying to control the price of a product, but if this is successful, there could be attempts to expand expand its use beyond COVID-19. Indeed, even Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont used the uh, Regeneron deal to announce the end of his hold on Monica Bertignoli's nomination for NIH director calling it a positive step forward. So for you all, do you think this idea could be used in, say, like the cancer moonshot or some other, you know, government drug development programs? I mean, with, you know, where they're they're funding clinical trials and so forth? I would be surprised if it uh, ended up uh, being widely used just because I think the uh, uh, COVID market dynamics sense were kind of, as you were uh, uh, discussing, uh, Derek, for kind of the current political dynamics are such that sort of kind of would lend itself to uh, this kind of a uh, you know a, a contract that sort of that uh, you know Regeneron had a very uh, um, you know uh, successful uh, um, COVID product uh, and then uh, um, you know in terms of doing the next uh, generation one that sort of it's uh, um, it's less clear for kind of how much demand there is going to be for uh, um, you know, for COVID therapeutics or COVID vaccines. Uh, Going forward, uh, you know, what was it? Fifteen uh, percent of the uh, U.S. population got the last uh, booster, and who knows uh, how many will get it? Uh, um, get it this season? Obviously, sort of therapeutics are, therapeutics are different, but I think for kind of uh, uh, everyone's sort of kind of wants to put uh, um, um, COVID behind them, and so uh, agreeing to this is, uh, um, uh, you know, perhaps expeditious way to sort of kind of help get the funding to sort of for uh, Regeneron. But if it were really sort of kind of a uh, um, you know, a linchpin uh, uh, blockbuster uh, potential. They may not have been uh, as eager to do it. Uh, you know, I think uh, um, you could see it in certain cancers, or you know, perhaps sort of uh, you know uh, cancers where uh, um, sponsors weren't otherwise uh, inclined to uh, pursue uh, um, pursue it. We wrote, uh, um, and I think maybe even talked about on the pod uh, um, a couple of weeks ago about. Uh, um, you know, through kind of a uh, process for ultra rare cancers, you know, perhaps if there was a uh, a funding stream attached to that uh, program, it would sort of kind of also sort of going to have these uh, price caps. But uh, uh, in terms of kind of more general contracting, uh, you know, as we even saw with uh, with COVID, the big uh, COVID vaccines did not, uh, um, you know, have this uh, um, attached to them and, uh, you know, annoyingly so for uh, um you know, for many more uh, um, liberal politicians that sort of kind of that uh, now that sort of things are uh, moving into the uh, private marketplace, uh, um, you know, Pfizer, BioNTech and uh, um, Moderna are free to price as they uh, um, as they wish and sort of kind of as the uh, um, the market values it. So uh, um, 
I, you know, I, I continue to think it's sort of a niche, uh, a niche uh, um, idea, but a very interesting one, and not uh, um, not one that companies can uh, kind of sleep on because uh, you know the political uh, dynamic could uh, um, could become even more favorable than they are now for it. So uh, um, it's not going to become the uh, um, the way of the world, but uh, um, very interesting nonetheless. I, I would agree with Matt. I was also struck, and and Derek, your story mentioned this about sort of the the limited shelf life that the monoclonals had, at least the first round in COVID. I mean, they were very effective until they weren't, <laughs> right? <laughs> based upon the, the circulating variants. Um, yeah, Regeneron's isn't so, authorized. I don't think in the U.S. anymore. The one they had, the one they had approved already. Right. So I, th- I I just think that is a factor too um, in terms of you know Matt's comments regarding a, a niche product. I do think it it would be an interesting the Matt referenced the conversation we had a week or two ago on the pod about um, private public partnership that is in the works for ultra rare tumors, and uh, yeah, I mean I I think it would be interesting in this sort of pricing model were applied in that sense. Um, so it could could set a precedent in that regard. But again, those would be very niche products as well if you're dealing with ultra rare tumors. Well, yeah, I was actually thinking, it's funny, we, we all think alike. I was, I was also thinking about this in the rare disease context, but I what made me wonder was, I remembered that the FDA funds, they have a very, it's, you know, compared to NIH, it's I mean, not even up to a rounding error in terms of funds, but they <clears throat> um, they offer grants for rare disease clinical trials. And you wonder if, I mean, I, I wonder if the calculus for a sponsor, if they tried to put that kind of language in there, if, you know, if that tips it one way or the other in terms of, you know, maybe we don't take the money because we don't want to be limited in terms of what potentially we could get back and whether investors would be, you know, whether investors looking for fun, you know, if they're looking for funds down the road to pay for the larger trials, you know, would be necessarily as interested as if they know that they're on the hook for something like this. I just don't know that the FDA orphan grants are (laughs) all that substantial. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of of really having that sort of impact. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, they're not. But, you know, I mean, yeah, in that context, probably not. But, you know, it, it at some point, the money starts to pile up. And if, you know, if, if it's if it's used in in whether it's NIH or other, you know, other scenarios, maybe, you know, maybe you start to wonder. I don't know. Yeah, it's certainly sort of uh, um, it's not the kind of thing that. Uh, you know, in, investors and uh, uh, shareholders like to like to see this for kind of a uh, you know potential sort of kind of a, a cap on uh, how much you can make from uh, um, something that turns out to be wildly successful. But uh, um, you know, if uh, um, this is the only way to get the uh, get the money, then it seems uh, um, it seems like companies will continue to sort of uh, um, do that in the in these sort of kind of uh, special circumstances. Uh, I also think it's interesting that sort of. Uh, that uh, Senator uh, Sanders was uh, um, able to say this was sort of the uh, Biden administration doing something about uh, drug pricing. Uh, you know, as you as you noted, it wasn't uh, um, you know the first time they've uh, done that, and it's not sort of kind of uh, been uh, declared for kind of the uh, universal policy uh, um, going forward. But 
I feel that he had kind of painted himself into a corner by uh, saying he wouldn't uh, um, hold a hearing on the uh, NIH nominee until uh, um, uh, he'd seen more movement from the Biden administration on pricing. And so they were able to uh, um, say that this was uh, um, the administration doing uh, doing more on pricing and uh, um, uh, uh, Bernie was able to uh, um, accept that so he could sort of get out of this uh, um, problem of his own creation uh, uh, there. So uh, um, it, uh, um, I think it's it, it maybe through as much about, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, a fig leaf for uh, um, the uh, the senator from uh, Vermont and uh, um, the Biden administration kind of rethinking through kind of its approach to, uh, um, you know, industry collaboration. Yeah, we're, we're here in Washington, we're used to kind of problems of of our own making, I think. But yeah, it's it's it that that's an interesting thought. I also wondered too how the I mean the simple way to the simple question is how do you enforce that provision in in a contract? I mean, what's the government going to do if you know Regeneron sells this to I don't know make it up a, a country in Europe for you know significantly less? Are they going to demand that price? Are they going to say give us the money back? Yeah, I, I <clears throat> you gonna force the company to declare bankruptcy? I, you know, I, I don't. You know that. I mean, it's a, you know, it's interesting to have the language in there, and you, you know, you sign a contract, you expect it to be followed. But what happens if something hap, you know, something happens and they can't follow it or they don't want to? Are they gonna walk away from a big European country because because of this of this uh, this provision? Well, I think uh, you know. Companies do uh, um, uh, sometimes decide not to uh, sell particular products in uh, um, in Europe because of uh, you know they just don't think there's uh, um, adequate uh, compensation available uh, um, for them. So uh, you know I think it's sort of kind of would kind of add to the dynamic there in terms of the the uh, um, the price benchmarking that sort of kind of that uh, they would have to. Uh, you know, sort of put put more weight on uh, um, what those prices mean, so it could uh, um, it could affect uh, um, their decision to uh, um, to sell in Europe. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question, and I'm curious to see how these you know if if this ends up getting any traction, you know, this idea gets any traction here, and you know if there are any kind of downstream impacts um, going forward. It'll be fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that the European HTA HTA approach <laughs> may actually end up influencing pricing in the U.S. at least in this very one focused area. Um, but I also would be interested to see if any other companies who are in the MAB um, for COVID business follow suit in terms of these kinds of contracts and pricing agreements. Yeah, now that you yeah. have. If you can, if you can self-fund, you know, you may not be interested in necessarily taking the barter money if this is what's, uh, this is what's come, what this is what's coming, I guess, so to speak. But again, if you're self-funding, how long is your product's shelf life really going to be? If the if the yeah. virus is changing enough that your product becomes not effective after a little while, so. And if we're not seeing a huge spike in hospitalizations and so forth, where the you know it's just the disease is not as bad as it was in early on when we needed, when a lot of people needed treatment, then you know again, like you said, Sue, the shelf life becomes you know a big question once again. 
Next, we're going to discuss a new hire at the FDA. Hader Warh was announced this week as a new senior advisor for chronic diseases to FDA Commissioner Robert Califf. Warh is a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. He said that he will be helping to generate better evidence and achieve better outcomes for chronic diseases, as well as further policy across drugs, devices, nutrition, tobacco, and health AI concerning chronic conditions. Unfortunately, that's about the extent of WRH's duties that we know of so far. The job notice said he would be offering technical suggestions for stimulating product development and writing action plans, guidances, and other communications as appropriate. WRH has written three books, including one about the nature of pain and how it will be and how it has been shaped by politics and science. He suffers from chronic pain and has argued for better understanding of the human body to improve treatment, as well as better access to alternative pain treatments and improved medical training. This perspective certainly could be useful for the FDA's campaign fighting opioid abuse and its efforts to encourage alternative pain treatments. These senior advisor roles are not unusual for the FDA or the rest of the federal government, for that matter. But do you all think we're going to hear a lot from him over the next you know, year or two or however long he decides to stick around? I would hope so. It's certainly a, uh, um, uh, you know, an area that could use uh, uh, more attention uh, yeah, sort of kind of after the uh, um, the drug safety controversies of uh, um, you know, sort of, kind of the 90s and uh, um, aughts, uh, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, uh, companies have uh, focused more on uh, um, niche, uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, cancer uh, um, and rare disease uh, products, if we can uh, use niche in a slightly different context than uh, um, we did in the last uh, segment. And, uh, you know, that's... Uh, um, Obviously, very important uh, uh, medically for uh, folks suffering from those conditions. But uh, you know, the idea that sort of that uh, um, you know uh, non-acute issues are kind of that uh, um, people have to deal with uh, uh, day in day out. Uh, um, you know, are not getting as much uh, um, uh, medical innovation at the moment. Uh, um, you know, I think it's frustrating a lot of uh, um, you know folks who recognize uh, how much of an impact that has on people's lives. So if there's a uh, a way to um, get the the agency to uh, rejigger sort of perhaps uh, uh, you know what it asks for sort of kind of what uh, um, uh, sponsors think is possible uh, anything along those lines uh, I think was a is a great uh, um, is a great idea again it's uh, you know a little unclear exactly what he'll be uh, um, doing and uh, you know probably sort of needs to get uh, up to speed on sort of kind of uh, how FDA does what it does as anybody sort of coming into any organization would uh, um, would have to but uh, you know I think it signals a uh, um, you know an important uh, um, idea that uh, you know the more uh, um, uh, folks thinking about this stuff from uh, from different angles the uh, the higher the chance will come up with some great ideas. Yeah, certainly that, you know, there's been a lot talked about in terms of, of sort of the decline in innovation and in, in, in chronic disease treatments um, in favor of, uh, of more, you know, sort of rare disease sector. I mean, some of that also has to do with there's less unmet need in terms of chronic disease, in terms of there are existing therapies um, for many of these diseases, although one could argue they're not necessarily very effective in some cases, but the the size of the trials involved is also sometimes huge for these chronic diseases. So there's a big investment and a time commitment there. And I could see where there would be, 
you know, an effort to sort of streamline trials, simplify trials, you know, sort of make the whole development process a little bit easier. Um, I could, I mean, I'm assuming that would be part of his remit maybe to, to look at that. I would also expect him in addition to, to focusing on the areas that you highlighted, Derek, around pain and opioids, given that his boss is a well-known cardiologist, I would expect yeah. him to be focusing a lot of attention on on heart disease and, and sort of related factors there. Dr. Califf has liked to talk about that, that likes to talk about that issue a lot. And, and, you know, the whole, you know, he kind of wraps it into the whole, our U.S. life expectancy is lower than other, you know, industrialized nations and, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that'll be, I think that, you know, in, in combination with some of the issues that they've got going on with tobacco and, and tobacco regulation and so forth will be certainly probably uh, in his uh, in his wheelhouse and so forth. So the the pain issue, I th- I, I, th- I think would be interesting to just be, and I wrote about this in the story because, you know, because he suffers from chronic pain himself. So, you know, the FDA's got a a bunch of different kind of things all going on at the same time. And maybe he can, you know, and, and they've talked about, you know, we're trying to stimulate, um, you know, non, uh, non-opioid pain treatment development and so forth. And you wonder if maybe, you know, just be, his perspective can help kind of, you know, push some of those ideas, you know, further along or something like that. Well, Another, there's also the issue of access to, to products that are already out there. I mean, you know, we've heard a lot about, and and FDA officials have heard a lot about how difficult it can be for patients who are truly in pain to be able to access opioid therapies. Yep. Um, then you know you could see where he might play a a role in sort of easing the way f- for the people who really need it, or or opening the door to to greater access to that in a certainly in a controlled manner. But you know that is. I can tell you that is a complaint that FDA officials have heard from patients and they acknowledge it and they are sympathetic about it. And I think they've struggled with how to balance that with the harms that opioids can cause. Yeah, for uh, better or worse, it feels like the um, the opioid epidemic uh, is now not uh, so much a uh, um, a prescription-driven one, but a sort of kind of illegal fentanyl and uh, um, everything else problem. Uh, you know, the recent statistic that uh, came out was uh, that uh, opioid prescriptions are dropping, but uh, overdose deaths are rising. And uh, you know, that's obviously uh, not good news, but the uh, um, it does it does seem to suggest that sort of kind of that uh, uh, sensible uh, and appropriate prescribing is uh, perhaps a uh, um, What's going on? Um, you know, there doesn't seem to be sort of it doesn't seem to be driven by uh, um, you know pill mills and the like as it uh, as it had been at the beginning. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that sort of people that need uh, um, these uh, scripts are in fact uh, um, getting them, but uh, you know, perhaps it uh, uh, will let uh, um, the uh, the prescribing community kind of think uh, um, think more about sort of kind of how to uh, um, how to best approach it without sort of kind of uh, being driven solely by fear. Yeah, another another interesting. Say a part of this is that um, Dr. Warach is um, apparently going to be splitting time between Washington D.C. and Boston. He said he uh, said in a tweet, and the the hospital confirmed that he's going to um, 
maintain a clinical presence at Brigham and Women's while he's working at the FDA. The the it that it's interesting that that comes up now because this week the there were there were some hearings on Capitol Hill about remote working and and whether or not we're the the government as a whole, not just the FDA, has <clears throat> needs to kind of go back to pre-pandemic teleworking rules and so forth. And um, the FDA has got has taken the remote the the kind of the remote working flexibility and helped it and used it as a recruiting tool. And it seems like you know this is one of the wins that they've been able to get because of that. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't be able to if he wasn't willing to, you know, relocate to Washington, at least, you know, for, you know, several days a week or most of the week, um, you know, I don't know if they'd have been able to hire him under the, you know, under the old, uh, the old paradigm. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how the remote uh, setup works and, 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 you know, kind of how that goes, um, you know, down the road, especially, you know, again, in the vein of, Everyone wants their, their people are starting to say with more force that federal workers need to go back to the office. Finally, we're going to take a look at cancer treatment. Sue, the FDA is bringing its dose optimization program to cancer combination therapies now. Yes, so Project Optimus, which it really rolled out a couple of years ago, but really in full force about a year ago, is its initiative to sort of reform the dosing paradigm for cancer drugs and the the goal is has been to do more dose exploration and optimization before marketing approval instead of waiting until after marketing approval because fda has maintained that in a lot of cases this the dose has never really been optimized and that has led to some not only toxicities, but also in some cases, it believes it has led to detrimental survival in some confirmatory trials of accelerated approval drugs. So FDA you know, rolled out this program a while ago and really started with um, kind of single agent therapies that it wants um, more exploration of more doses early on. It wants um, randomized trials early on of different doses, and then from there, you go into a phase three trial. Um, and this is much different than what the traditional sort of um, maximum tolerated dose MTD approach that has always been followed um, in cancer therapies, and particularly it came from the chemotherapy space. So um, FDA issued a guidance on Project Optimus earlier this year, and they have since had some meetings. There was an, a pediatric advisory committee meeting in the spring where they talked about applying these principles to pediatric cancer drugs. And then there was just an, a meeting jointly sponsored with ASCO a couple of weeks ago on um, dose, dose optimization for combination cancer therapies. And um, Oncology Center of Excellence Director Rich Pastor said, you know, we started out with single agents in Project Optimus, but a natural extension would be to go into combination therapies because most cancer, anti-cancer agents are used as combination therapies. So what this means is that the um, studies leading up to submission for a combination therapy are going to be more involved. There's going to be an expectation for more dose exploration work 
possibly for for both compounds or or all of the compounds involved in a combination. And there's going to be um, just more steps that sponsors have to go through to demonstrate to FDA that the op, the dosage of one or all of the ingredients in the combination have been optimized. It was pointed out at this meeting that, you know, traditionally the doses of these single agents have not been optimized um, and they don't have good information on that, but that under the initial round of Project Optimus, that information is getting better. So in the future, it should be easier to sort of optimize the dosage of one or more of the products in a combination therapy um, as you're doing the combination studies. So we'll see, but the long and short of it is that combination studies are going to look a lot different moving forward. So this sounds like more maybe pre-approval work as opposed to maybe post-approval work? Yes, absolutely. FDA wants this done up front. They have run into too many problems with toxicities or adverse survival, um, especially in the accelerated approval um, paradigm, in cases where they don't think the dose was optimized and, and the drug was just either not tolerable or too toxic. And if a drug is, is just not tolerable, then patients aren't getting the right the, the enough dosage to make it actually effective. So what's the point, right? So FDA mm -hmm. wants more of this work done up front as they've been pushing for single agents, they're now going to be pushing this for combination products. And it's just more complicated for combination therapies because you've got, you know, two or more products that you have to figure out, okay, what dose of, of A should I try with what dose of B? And so there are, you know, kind of di different algorithms that you have to go through to try to figure this out. And there's going to be a lot of work in terms of there was a lot of discussion at this meeting on preclinical models and um, statistical approaches and clinical trial, you know, innovative clinical trial approaches and exposure response data. So I just you're going to see a lot. You're going to see larger studies and more complicated studies leading up to um, approvals of combination cancer therapies going forward, I think. Stu, what's your uh, sense of uh, industry reaction to uh, um, Project Optimus? Uh, you mentioned a couple times that sort of uh, FDA was pushing. Is industry pushing back? Uh, my feeling is that uh, you know companies are not a uh, not opposed to this, but they uh, um, you know just need to sort of figure out how to to do it well and uh, and smoothly. Just like anything new, they have to kind of adjust, and uh, um, there's going to be uh, a period of uh, uncertainty and that's sort of kind of going to be difficult as uh, uh, companies figure out sort of kind of how to uh, um, you know incorporate these procedures into their uh, development programs. Yeah, I think companies probably realize this is a done deal at this point. <laughs> the Oncology Center of Excellence generally doesn't roll something out unless it's really ready to go with it. There were a lot of comments on that guidance that came out earlier this year some of them very unhappy with the guidance, some of them saying this strategy is going to lead to exposure of more patients to ineffective doses. Um, those were some of the comments. And that came, that comment actually came from the National Cancer Institute. Mm -hmm. So, 
and just uh, sponsors also saying, you know, well, okay, you got to be flexible with us. This has to be on a case by case basis. Okay. So FDA has said they are, you know, working on revising that guidance and trying to address some of the concerns that were raised in those comments. But, you know, I think companies know that this is the direction that things have to go. Um, and I don't, you know, I think FDA has made that very clear in advisory committee meetings over the course of the last two years. Actually, maybe even over the course of the last 10 years, I've heard Rick Pazder talking about this, saying this dose was never optimized for this drug. You need to do better, right? And I think they put their foot down and they're not going to look back now. You know, I think it's it's going to be up to the sponsors and FDA to sort of work this out. I think, you know, you're more sophisticated, big pharma companies. They're already doing this. You know, there was an example. There were several case studies that were presented at this workshop on um, pre-optimus combinations that actually ended up in development programs that followed some of the optimus principles. Um, so it gave you an, a look at kind of how to do this. And one of those involved Bristol-Myers Squibb, you know, and um, their PD-1 inhibitor. Optivo. So, you know, I think the big companies are are going to be on board with this. Yeah, they want more clarity. Yeah, they want more flexibility. But this is the direction things are going. You know, I think it's the smaller companies, the small you know, biotechs that are going to have a lot more trouble adjusting to this because it's going to involve longer, bigger studies up front. Yeah, it's a not a surprising direction, but uh, it's still, I still find it really interesting that this is kind of going, you know, that this project is growing as much as it is. But um, thanks, Sue. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sue Sutter and Matt Hobbs. Take care and we'll see you next time.